It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hey, everybody. This is Greg Gutfeld. Welcome back to The One. All right. My guest today, his name is Ryan Streeter. Sounds kind of like an actor. Uh, who is the director of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he oversees research in education, technology, housing, poverty studies, workforce development, and public opinion. I also – that was a compliment, by the way, about his name, Ryan Streeter. It's just kind of a great name. Anyway, he wrote this article uh, in uh, Real Clear Politics uh, called The Politics of Loneliness, and I wanted to talk to him about it because – it raises a lot of interesting questions about uh, does loneliness lead to political activism or does political activism just attract people who aren't likable? Uh, Ryan, how are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the name compliment. <laughs> yes. When you work in and around politics, sometimes there is some acting involved. So <laughs> I appreciate that. No one said that before. I just like the name Ryan Streeter tonight. Ryan Streeter after MacGyver. It's actually like a name <laughs> that the character has. It's like Ryan Streeter from the wrong end of the tracks. Here to solve. A- you have 48 hours, Streeter, to find the missing girl. All right, I've gone off into the... right to it, I guess. Yeah. Yes, I, I now own your name. So anyway, so you start this piece... Uh, as you say, are political activists lonely? And the answer is yes. But you go into this AEI study in which you uh, you looked at a survey of 18 to 35-year-olds, and you found out that those who choose to volunteer for political organizations and campaigns, um, lonely people are seven times more likely to volunteer than the not lonely. And conversely, socially active young adults who are not lonely tend to volunteer for faith-based organizations at six times the rate. So people who are lonely tend to veer towards politics. People who aren't lonely tend to veer towards faith-based stuff. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, that's fairly accurate and and really interesting. I mean, we didn't go into the survey looking for those findings. Yeah. They just kind of emerged from the data. And, and the survey was actually of adults of all ages, so it allows us to compare mm. young adults with baby boomers and, and others. And we asked a whole bunch of questions in the survey, which was really just about community life in general. You know, everyone's doing public po- um, opinion research on political attitudes right now. We're all obsessed with everyone's political attitudes right now. We wanted to go a couple layers deeper and just you know find out how people are actually doing in their lives. You know, right. And is this polarization that we're experiencing, is it affecting us in other ways, is it overblown, et cetera. And we asked a bunch of questions that other um, uh, social scientists have asked about loneliness. You can create a scale where you, you look at how people generally feel they are um, or are not uh, embedded in meaningful relationships, right? And you create this, this, this scale, it's called the UCLA Loneliness Index, and it gives you the ability then to kind of group um, people by, by their levels of loneliness and, and, or, or, the, or the opposite. And we found that, yeah, what you just said was really interesting. For younger people, um, for, for young adults between 18 and 35, um, there's, a, there's a group of them that are socially active and yet still lonely. Like, you can hang out with your friends, meet them at the pub or at the coffee shop or whatever, but you still kind of feel like you're not connected mm-hmm. with people. And that group of people, who's, they want to be around other people, but they feel lonely. When, when you ask them about their volunteerism habits, they almost uh, uniformly pick politics. 
They right. sign up for campaigns or issue advocacy, that kind of a thing. And people who say, yeah, I'm hardly ever lonely. I've got a lot of friends. People love, and love me and every, everything. And when I volunteer, I basically volunteer at church or right. a synagogue or, you know, with a charity in town that's connected with a faith-based group. Their focus is, is, is different. And it, it's, we, I can talk about this later. We saw these patterns with older adults, too. But with young people in particular, it was just very interesting how they were divided. If you're lonely... And you like to be with other people, it's politics. If you're not lonely and you like to be with people, it's other community-based stuff and with a heavy faith, faith component. And it, and, it, it, and it shows up in almost every type of political activity. Because we asked people um, in, in another part of the survey, you know, do you ever hand out um, campaign material for a candidate? Do you tell family members who to vote for? Do you give money to candidates? And in every single one of those categories, the lonely crowd um, – is much higher than yeah. the non-lonely crowd. Yeah, it, with the exception of voting. Uh, when it comes to voting, yes. the, the non-lonely ones actually voted higher rates, which we also thought was kind of interesting and actually kind of amusing. And hypocritical, because what you're right. saying is the lonely people who are politically active, who are lecturing the rest of us fun-loving, sociable people about how to live our lives, aren't even voting. <laughs> That's right. I know. And Greg, I have to say, um, actual faces of people I know came to mind when I was reading these data points. It's, I mean, I'm, this is we, we like all, we all know this crowd. This is um, one of those things that uh, when you read it becomes so, so obvious that it's like, why? Have, I mean, it's like we, we it's like we kind of knew this. And I'm, I, I, OK, so the positive spin, I'm going to do the positive spin for the lonely person. And then I'm going to do the reality spin. The positive spin is that. Um, they ha- they feel lonely because they feel that there's an important there's an important mission in life that their friends don't see. Like I'm for the I'm, I am for the environment. I'll, I'll be at a pub with six people, but I'm Greta Thunberg. I, these people do not understand that the Earth is going to end in ten years. So I am at, the, the positive spin is that I feel so strongly about something that my friends don't see, which causes my loneliness, that I must go this road alone. Now, that's the positive spin. The negative spin is that the activist mentality is unlikable, that the person who tends to be an activist is a busybody, um, is like the nosy neighbor, the person that gets into your that's the per- – and, and, it's, and it's like we know this. And so it's like I, I, I tend to be – I tend to say that – your study or this this study that you wrote about lends itself more to that negative spin because when you see and you're around activists, I, I, I call it the unbending mind, that when you're around somebody and you can tell that their mind won't bend, like if you could, if you mm-hmm. they start when they start talking to you and they're shouting at you, they're shouting somebody down on campus. What they're telling you is there is no conversation and no debate because I am antisocial. So I think I mean, they are they are actually expressing an antisocial perspective. That, yeah. that activism allows, but life in general doesn't. I, I said a lot there all over the place. Pick and choose whatever you want to respond to. Yeah. No, I find myself in, in, in agreement with these things that you're saying. And actually, what's interesting in the survey data is you find that this lonely activist group also thinks very lowly of these institutions of civil society on yes. which our, our, our health and happiness really depend, right? right? So we ask them things like, 
you know, do you believe that charities in your neighborhood are, are important for your neighborhood? Or we say, which of these organizations contribute to the success of your neighborhood? And the lonely crowd will basically, only like 16% of them will, will say that charities matter or something. Right. It's a very small number. Um, we ask them about families, very low opinion of families compared to the non-lonely. Group. It's because their and family cool. hates them. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and they just, uh, yeah, it's like they had a bad experience with Sunday school at one point. And right. They don't get along with people at home. And, they, and, and for whatever reason, this um, political community provides that kind of sort of tribal um, sense of belonging that people are, are looking for, and there's more. There's a lot more we can say there, and I think that that the um, the the data just show very clearly what you were saying earlier that we've all kind of surmised or expected yeah. to find if we did a survey like this, but we weren't really sure what, what we were going to find. What I thought was interesting was just the the almost exact sort of um, converse relationship between activism and politics and low opinions of these other things right. on which our civil society depends. It's very strong. Now, we also have, uh, we haven't written this up yet, we will. We have also analyzed the data just for adults in general. And as people get older, things do change a little bit. You start to see political participation and civic participation evening out. And I think, you know, people that are in their 40s and 50s, there's just some people that volunteer and some that don't, you know. And so yeah. you, you tend to see that, that, that sort of wide division between civil society and politics even out a little bit. But what we found was that when we ask people about what type of voluntary groups they're a part of, and we give people 11 options, you know, your church, a local charity, a veterans group, a sports club, whatever, and we include um, political organizations in there. We found that um, only people that volunteer in political organizations are higher than the national loneliness average than everyone else. Everybody else, all, people, if they are volunteers, that's about half of Americans are, would say they're a member of like one type of group. About right. a third would say two or more. And when you look at all the other groups, all those other types of voluntary associations that I mentioned, people that are actively involved in them once or, uh, you know, or so a week or once or so a month, um, their average loneliness scores are lower than the national average. Only politics is higher. So we see this, again, across the, the board, even with, with older adults. They, for, for people who say they belong and are active in a political organization, they also tend to register high on these social, isolate, these social isolation scores that we have, which mm-hmm. are, are, are pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, there's... And so, Go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. so there's, there, 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 there is this, this sense of belonging that one is looking for, I think, in, in politics, which um, is... is 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 sort of something we understand, something we still need to explore a little bit more. What, what's actually driving that? We're not entirely sure. Yeah, um, two things, two things strike uh, kind of hit me in this. One, um, the, the you mentioned the political community of the activist group. I don't know. I mean, that is a community. It, it is a community, I guess. But it always seems to me when I'm looking at it and I'm watching it closely that it's more of a chemical reaction that. That in a weird way that the people are getting off, they're getting their dopamine hit. Like when they're together and they're like getting excited over something, there is no real friendship. There's no kinship. It's not like, hey, it's not like us going out and playing five on five soccer, right? This is something where people are in their own heads at all times, which allows them to scream into the face of somebody or to mob a person. And, and this is where it gets to my next step, or, uh, which is the people that are more likely to gravitate towards uh, political I'm, – I'm, and I'm, I'm taking the extremes, the activist groups like the Antifas and the Black Lives Matter kind of thing and, and um, Occupy Wall Street, that kind of stuff. Those people are also vulnerable 
or more willing to participate in a violent or a fascist group because they they have no interest in the in preserving the community institutions that you mentioned. Like they hate their family when they could they, they don't talk to their parents. Uh, maybe they maybe only if they need to get a loan paid off, but they hate their dad. Because her dad was successful. They hate their mom because she won't understand. Uh, they hate their siblings because their siblings are Republican or what, whatever. They're always that person. So when they, when they are in a group, it is easier for them to press that button that, that kills somebody because they actually – the markers of these communities that you mentioned that they, that they don't go to are actually just emblematic of being a human being. And the political thing – is emblematic of not being human. Like poli- political, like political activism requires almost a polarizing attitude to pursue. So again, I spew uh, half nonsense, half wisdom for you to <laughs> to to climb through. <laughs> no, it's oh, it's all, it's all good. There's a lot of wisdom in there, Greg. Let me just confirm that. Um, the, it was very nice the, of you to say. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So when we look at at millennials in our survey and 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 Gen Z Zers, you find out that. You know, people say that there's this loneliness epidemic that we have in America, right? right. Like, you know, we have this epidemic. We've been reading about this for, for years now, and, I, and I'm sort of a skeptic. I mean, I think that just people have been lonely when they're younger in every generation. Yeah. I mean, there, have been, there have been loneliness epidemic books written almost every decade going back to the 50s. That's David interesting, Reeson wrote yeah. The Lonely Crowd in 1951. Right. And, and um, there was a study in 1951 that said, I think adolescents are basically just lonelier than everyone else. I mean, this is, this is sort, of, sort of just... Actually, what happens? You, you, when you're young and you graduate from high school, if you go to college, or you go to college and you get a job, or even if you don't go to college and you get a job, you're just you're moving into new, you know, you're you're, you're setting off into new pastures and you're and you're lonelier. That's that's fairly common, actually. Yeah, it's not a new thing. But when you look at millennials who are married, their their loneliness rates drop tremendously, way mm-hmm. more than those who live together. Those who live together and those who are single about the same. Interesting. And then you look at yeah, and the, the ones who are single, they're they're more more likely to say they're uh, they're lonely a lot, like often. Right. But, but when you add up those who say they're they're off, they're sometimes lonely or they're often lonely, they they come out to about the same percentage, a little over half. Gotcha. And 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 marrieds are more like thirty nine percent. But um, but when you add to that, they're involved in like a faith community, and then you add to that they lived in their neighborhood for like more than five years, mm-hmm. their loneliness levels drop to those of, like, baby boomers, which are, you know, the older you get, the less lonely you are, because you have friends and you've lived in your community a while and, and so on and so forth. And so I think there is something to this kind of activist mindset that's detached from community. You, you, find, you find this in the kind of the, 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 the profile that you're talking about, the people that actually have time to go show up at these rallies. Right. Stuff. Yes. Extinction Rebellion people are crawling through the streets of London and, you know, doing, <laughs> doing these, these weird pantomimes yes. and stuff, you know. Right. Um, if you're married and you have a job and you're yeah. uh, active in your local community, you don't have have time to do pantomimes. Exactly. Of, of London. And you, don't, and you're, you, might, you don't have a sick on, parent. Yeah. You don't have a sick parent. Like when I was watching those Brits, activists blocking the tube, and I'm thinking like, I like some of those people probably have a sick parent that they're getting to, or they have a child that is that has to get to the yeah, hospital. Right. But these these assholes, they must have no problems that they could take the day off and screw over everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
So what's driving this, right? You know, I think I think there's really something to this notion that I think Mary Aberstadt's written about this really really well in this recent book she's done called Primal Screams, which is just this this connection between identity politics, the people that really kind of sign up for this stuff, right. and this this thing that you're mentioning, which is basically kind of a breakdown of families, of yeah. communities that that when people grow up in sort of dysfunctional places and they don't have good trusting relationships when they're younger, it doesn't mean that as a human being you stop valuing relationships and trust. You still want them, but you go you go looking for them in these places that seem to intensify the experience of, of meaning, and, and politics does that. There's this this kind of urge to join, like, um, I call them basically abstract tribes. They're, right. You, you, you want to join this ideological cohort that raises the passions up. I mean, David Hume wrote about the stuff in the 1750s. This isn't, this isn't particularly yeah. new. He, you know, he noticed all the way back then there was something weird happening in politics in Britain where, where people were joining political parties that were based on ideas, not just interests. Right. You know, like the farmers and the merchants and all those used to have political parties. It just reflected their interests, and you go to parliament and you debate that stuff. And now people are joining them over they're, – they're ideological. Yeah. He didn't really have that, that, the, the, that language, but that's what he said. Mm-hmm. And, and other writers over the years have, have noticed that. But it seems like there's something kind of new going on here in America that I think um, Mary Aberstadt in the book I just mentioned put her, uh, um, her finger on, which is that you really see the rise of identity politics group. At the same time, you start to see a breakdown of traditional households, of people living in stable communities and the, and the like. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what I would also say, and this, again, this, this won't come as a surprise to you, but it, it, it should, should be said, is when we looked at young adults that we, we started out this conversation talking about, it really was kind of Republicans and Democrats were the, were the same. The, you know, if you were lonely and socially active, it didn't matter if you were a Republican or Democrat, you volunteered in politics. When you look at all adults and you look at the, the older um, cohort, the people that I talked about a few minutes ago who are the, the political joiners, you yeah. know, who are lonelier than, than average, yeah. they tend to be more highly educated and more progressive in their politics. Right, right. So, so you see the, the lonelier crowd is the, the, when we see them, you know, when they're in their 50s or, or, or whatever, they're really more kind of that, that picture that you, you have of the people that went to college, maybe have, even had an advanced degree. They're progressive in their politics, and they, they, they fall into that group. So, so, I, yeah, I ha- so politics is filling this void that, that people uh, aren't getting filled in these other kind yeah. of more traditional ways of, of relating to each other. Yeah. All right, so I want to make a couple points. I'm going to ask you the last big question. But I want to um, – I think in terms of uh, – Younger people feeling feeling lonelier than older people. My theory on that is as I get older, I like people less. So I don't I don't see loneliness as loneliness, but as like kind of like freedom from other beings like I I, I really enjoy like being by myself as a as just as almost as like a hobby it's a hobby for me to be on my own anyway but that's a different point um you're a pursuit of loneliness is not a bad endeavor (laughs) it really isn't it really isn't um um to your point about identity politics i think that there's no way that you can have a community when you're um intersectionally competing and that and 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 that somebody has to be I have to be the most depressed and than you. And I think that's going to come to some kind of ugly conclusion. I think you're already hap- seeing it happening in um, the LGBTQ uh, group because th- they're supposed to be aligned together. But when you look at their uh, when you look at their uh, ideas and, syst- and goals and systems, they're different. So there's like it's like that. That is not going to hold together for very long. But to your point now about I I think that the concentric, the successful concentric circles of life are 
and I'm not religious, but I'm willing to, I know that religion is important, that you have uh, these concentric circles. There's you, there's your family, there's religion, there's community. And what has happened is uh, certain people have been able to leapfrog over all of those circles to this external gratification of social media. So they get their dopamine hits, uh, not from their kid sister or their dad. They're getting it from some freak who's like a 3,000 miles away who also believes, you know, that, you know, kale has the power of God or whatever they want to believe in. So it's like you can find what you make these connections with people who aren't really in your life as opposed to people who are in your life. And what that does is you're replacing you're, you're placing relationships with a a fake a fake. It's almost like you're dub, it's almost like you're making the lack twice as bad like you're like the deprivation is double because you're replacing it with something that isn't real you know and and it's it's like instead of having a mate you have a blow up doll that is what social media is for these people so i want to ask you after i've babbled on and used the blow up doll and analogy instead of introducing so what i think the problem here is that they've introduced politics into everyday things and i think that you need to reverse the traffic to your the, the idea of these community things uh uh, uh, being put back into the world instead of being pushed out, which means loosening the grip that a few loud voices have on the media. You know, the, the, the loud the, it, it, activists are are scaring the crap out of human resources, scaring the crap out of me. We will do anything yeah. if, if there's three people on Twitter that are upset. We'll apologize. Do you have any solutions? Or uh, uh, that's my last question for today. Do you have any solutions? Because I don't. Well, I have one solution. I, I I don't feel like I have really great solutions. It's a very difficult thing to kind of reverse, right? Right. Um, you know, in our, our so-called, quote-unquote, national conversations that we have, you know, yeah. on, on these, these social media platforms, are usually they're either about politics or these, these identity themes are just woven through them all the time, right? Right. And so the only thing I know how to do is to cover more what's going on at the community level and to talk about it. And, 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 and to, you know, so, you know, I work at a think tank, so we try yeah. to write and talk about things that we think people should be incorporating. And in, in public policy, we should remember that communities matter. We used to. We used to design policy solutions and welfare reform and community policing or whatever with a neighborhood in mind and with, with, with real people in mind. Now we just fight about abstract categories in our politics. And so I think, I think we need to do everything we can to make sure these things that we know have been studied to death and, and seem to be true, that human beings need to be in meaningful relationships like, in, like actual where they're sitting around with their friends and yeah. serving people and, and their stability over time. We need to talk about how those things matter and try to at least get enough people to remember that so that they'll actually take some time to spend time uh, in their community rather than uh, in their, in, in, you know, on their phone in their basement or whatever. Yeah. You know, we, we know that these things, those concentric circles that you, you mentioned, we know that these things matter. There's a huge body of social science literature on this stuff going yeah. back for a couple of decades. I mean, it's really hard to argue with those, those points. And yet, the way that the media portrays marriage or faith or mm-hmm. service of others and, and, and promotes the exact opposites, you know, you're basically promoting people's unhappiness. Yes. And you're, you're, you're giving people a recipe to be depressed, to be anxious, and to be mad. And yeah. now we're surprised that people are depressed, anxious, and mad. Yeah. Um, so we just, we, we just don't give enough airtime to these things that we know matter in all our various forms of media. And, and I don't just mean mainstream media. I mean all, all, all different ways of influencing public opinion through the dissemination of information. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I it's, it's funny. I got a role, but I want to like I have been barreling towards the conclusion that the media is 
is behind everything bad in this world. And I've been in the media for 25 years, I guess, right? 55, right? So how old am I? Yeah, t- almost 30 years. And I've been in every part of media from health magazines to uh, men's magazines to TV. But I do believe that the promotion of unhappiness, it st- it, the media is primarily responsible be- through its mockery of things that have worked. The media, the media has mocked things that have worked without replacing, the, replacing these things with something better. And so now we're kind of like – we're like the wheels are coming off the cart. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now, yeah. Ryan. Ryan, thank you for giving us this time. This was really great. The article was awesome. Uh, looking forward to see other, seeing other stuff you do. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk with you. Awesome, man. Take care. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.